Hello and welcome back for episode 37 of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. It's been a few weeks since the last episode and I'm going to stay on trend with the implant topics. In the last interview, we interviewed a Sydney-based uh, general dentist, Dr. David Atia, who is doing a lot of work with uh, soft tissue and implants. And actually, he introduced me to today's guest, uh, who is Dr. Philip Walton out of uh, Toronto, Canada, who's a periodontist there. And, you know, he came with high recommendations as being a really humble and, you know, fantastic and, and uh, caring individual who really loves periodontology and has become very active on Instagram and is, you know, contributing a lot of great content to the dental community that we have on there. Uh, as you know, the Newbie Dentist podcast is, you know, based mostly uh, based on Instagram. And when I meet people who are such positive members of that Instagram dental community, it's always a pleasure to talk to them and see their journey and their pathway. Uh, Dr. Walton is one of those people that, you know, when you read the resume, you kind of uh, feel bad <laughs> about yourself. But, you know, he's uh, just a truly humble and genuine guy, and I really enjoyed our chat. Uh, Dr. Walton uh, went to the University of Toronto Dental School, uh, where he completed his DDS. Um, and later on, he moved on to Harvard uh, to complete his periodontology specialty. Um, he's been out for about uh, 10 years now and working in private practice in Toronto, Canada. Um, and doing some really innovative work um, in some of the practices that he's working at, you know, centered around same-day implants and uh, temporary uh, tooth replacement. We chat about a lot of topics, including, you know, pathways into implant dentistry, the role of social media and Instagram into dentistry today, and how it's, you know, helping, um, you know, general dentists, dental students, and even specialists, you know, accelerate their learning curve and progress in their specialties and in their careers. I really enjoyed this chat. Uh, it's nice to hear the Canadian accent. Um, I must uh, apologize. The uh, audio quality is a little bit choppy at times. Uh, my internet wasn't the best on the day. I have since uh, upgraded my internet at home. So hopefully the future episodes uh, will be a little bit better in terms of how choppy they are. So just bear with us. There's a lot of fantastic content on here. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode and get as much value from it as I did. Uh, as always, you can find me at Newbie Dentist on Instagram. Reach out with any questions or comments or feedback. I do love to hear from you guys. The podcast is available everywhere on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and also on my website at NewbieDentist.com. If you have any uh, positive feedback, uh, if you can rate us on iTunes, that is fantastic and it would help the community grow. The interview was so captivating that I actually kind of we just fell into conversation and I didn't have a formal uh, starting point. So if you don't mind, we're just going to jump into the middle of the conversation uh, from where we kind of kicked off things and take it from there. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this fantastic episode with Dr. Philip Walton, a periodontist out of Toronto, Canada. Hello and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high quality and high value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omerizami. As a result, he put me in touch with a periodontist who at the time was the head of perio and the head of Mount Sinai, Howard Tenenbaum is his name. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I basically would go every Thursday night after dental school to go shadow this guy. And essentially, uh, I would spend my evenings watching him. And as a result of the relationship that I forged with this Dr. Tenenbaum, who was a pretty big deal in the perio world, yeah. he 
ended up becoming like he wanted me to go to Perio, then I wanted to go to Perio because of it, and he was he he was my letter of you know my the, the letters of recommendation and yeah. kind of was the whole thing. So Bruce, in some ways, is at least in part responsible not only for me becoming a periodontist, but then on the back end, he also was responsible for helping hook me up with a number of the jobs that I currently have. So yeah, that's awesome. So where so you just started like your own practice in Toronto, is that right? Like, no, so actually. Quite the opposite. Yeah, I don't have my own practice. I actually finished my, my residency. I finished. I went to Harvard. I finished in 2011. Yeah. So I'm coming on like eight years now, basically come May. And actually, it was Bruce as well, yeah. who at the time he kind of initially discouraged me from starting my own practice. Mm-hmm. And I always thought of myself as an individual who would 100 percent personality wise, et cetera. I want to set up a big practice, you know, Yorkville center of the city, be like the kind of guy. And I, when I first came back, Bruce's suggestion was that he thought that the topography and the field was changing and that, uh, not that there wasn't a place for external referral, typical specialization, but there was a lot of factors coming into play that he thought you should at least just try, maybe consider working in a couple of solid GP offices. You have a lot of debt, like everyone and coming from Boston was like crazy, like with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, uh, he said, you know, maybe before sinking yourself another million, million and a half into debt without knowing for sure, that's what you want to do and establishing a practice. Yeah. Get your hands dirty, establish a bit of a reputation, et cetera. So I did that. Um, I also, paired up with a periodontist at the time who was a bit of a controversial personality in the city, but very successful. Yeah. And a lot of people told me I shouldn't, but I guess sometimes people need to learn the hard way. And sometimes I'm one of those people. Yeah. And as a result, um, we, we broke apart pretty quickly after like seven months, but I think I was a little bit like a guy who came out of a, like a bad relationship. I felt yeah. like a little bit scorched. Yeah. So I just, you know what? Not for me. I think I'm going to continue putting my head down and just working at a number of these GP offices. Um, that whittled down over time from being like, initially I was working at nearly a dozen practices yeah. all over town, Brantford, you know, an hour outside of the city, Barry, you name it, yeah. uh, the East Durham, et cetera, Oshawa. And then over time, fortunately I was able to kind of pair myself up with stronger, uh, I guess, practices that were really more in line with how I wanted to be practicing. But even still today, I actually practice at four practices. Mm -hmm. One of which is basically my home base. And that's probably if if you ever are following on Instagram or seeing these bigger surgical cases that I'm doing, um, it's kind of like an implant center with several surgeons, a couple of oral surgeons, myself, a periodontist, and a couple of general dentists who exclusively practice implant-related care. That's awesome. But that's like, yeah. yeah. So that, that's kind of, I guess, in a nutshell, kind of where I'm at um, professionally. Yeah. And is that, yeah. in a, is that in a city or where's that one? So yeah, it's actually close to York University. So it's okay. a, like, it's just, I mean, technically GTA. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, from the heart of the city, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. But we recently, we moved. We were at Young and Shepherd, even closer to the city. Yeah. But a a good problem to have. We yeah. were a five operatory, couple thousand square foot space bursting at the seams. Mm-hmm. We had close to 30 staff and wow. no place for people to park even at that area of the city. That's a and tough area really to needed a bigger location. <laughs> yeah. That's it, cool. Was, it was a big complaint, especially for some of these longer appointments where people were being sedated and being picked up and whatnot. So 
we purchased this building, which was actually an old jewelry manufacturer. And it's huge. It's 30,000 square feet. Yeah. And wow. it's just, I have a couple of years in the process, just finished up and we moved into November, but it's a whole different beast. It's 18 operatories. Wow. Scale labs, one just for doing these full arch reconstructions where we have dentures working, one yeah. for doing all porcelain and, and single tooth restorations. It has a full amphitheater basically for continuing education with like breakout rooms, a full kitchen for catering to that stuff. Wow, nice. And like a, a waiting area that's like the size of like an airport terminal. It's like <laughs> a little crazy, but, um, but it's a really special practice. It's a little bit of a one of a kind as far as we know, even in like for sure in North America, but it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really cool, it's a very different kind of um, environment. Yeah. And you don't have like, so is it um, like who owns that? Is it just the couple of oral surgeons that own that or? Yeah. So actually, interestingly enough, the guy who owns it is a general dentist <laughs> and he started off years ago, very into implants and yeah. he kind of dedicated his practice saying, I want to be an implant guy. And all he did was place implants and he was really struggling to establish himself, obviously to get referrals from surgeons or dentists to a general dentist is challenging. Yeah. He, the way he just kind of, I guess, differentiated himself was to actually um, really try and push like same day dental implants, okay. which you hear about in advertisements and, and see on TV and whatnot. But basically he, for both full arch reconstructions where you kind of, you know, edentulate a person and put in implants and put the teeth in the same time, but also for single and multiple that's kind of our thing, but to do it and to do it well, a lot of people are under the misconception that it's like just not possible. You have to yeah. go the conventional route. You can, but you need a crazy infrastructure. Yeah. So it was his dream to always build this thing. And it just took a you know, fair amount of balls and, and, and money to do so yeah. and a vision, but he's a visionary guy. That's and awesome. you need to have a lab and you need to have dentists and you need to have surgeons. And you need to have everyone kind of be on the same kind of field. So that's kind of my home base. And I'm there a couple days a week. And then the other few days of the week, I actually spend at, um, I, I spend at, at general practitioner's offices. Okay, cool. And is it just pretty exclusively implants? Or are you doing like a wide uh, range of perio treatment? Yeah. So at that clinic specifically, 95% of what I do are dental implants. And we, mm -hmm. we push out a lot of them. Um, and we push it to the limit in terms of like the, the way that, we're so been so successful in actually gaining our referrals in spite of the, um, I guess now being a little more challenging in a very dense and saturated city uh, has to do with the same day care. So whereas a dentist may decide to send to their typical periodontist or surgeon who will tell the patient, I'm going to take the tooth out. I'm going to bone graft. You're going to wait four to six months. Then you're going to come back. I'm going to do a second procedure. Then you're going to wear a flipper for another six months and then we'll give you a tooth. Yeah. You know, strong contrast to, well, we know these guys who you're going to go there and they're going to take the tooth out, put the implant in and give you a tooth all on the same day. Yeah. So yeah. as a result, we've, we've really, really, really grown quite steadily from basically a few years ago where we were, we weren't even working with referrals. We were just direct to consumer with marketing and stuff yeah. to actually ramping things up to the point where we have, you know, like nearly seven or 800 active referring dentists who really work with us on a, on a, on a big basis. And we get a lot of word of mouth and things like that. But um, I guess back to the combination of this practice, how it succeeded and why I didn't start my practice. Some of the big factors when I was telling you about with, with perio in general, how it's changed. And I think just specialization in general is that 
you know, Perio has suffered in a couple of ways, unfortunately. One is guys like me are guilty of, of the sin of going in-house. Yeah. And as a result, you've got your guy who used to send out no longer sending out. Yeah. Um, the, the second is that a lot of general dentists, as you know, both abroad and here, are, are learning dental implants and periodontal surgeries, whether they're taking extensive courses or mentorships or observerships, yeah. and really incorporating that stuff into their practice, especially with the, with the degree of, um, I guess, with debt and whatnot. People want to be able to do all sorts of treatment. Yeah, to it's kind changing of, a lot for sure. Yeah, so, um, and then the last piece is that with corporatization of dentistry, where these big corporations are buying dental offices, the first thing they do is they're like, stop sending your hygiene out to, uh, to a periodontist. We're yeah. going to keep all in the practice. So between all those things, it's, it's made it a little more challenging, I think, for your typical external referral. They still exist. There's still guys who are extremely successful at it. But yeah. that's what kind of made, drove me to do what, I, what I've been doing. That's awesome. So I think that makes sense. And it works out quite well for you guys because your overhead is obviously pretty much nothing because you, you just have like this sort of like an associateship model. You just pay a small percentage and it's probably a better deal than what general dentist associates kind of get as well, I'm sure. So what's a, you know, the non-surgical perio treatment, like the basic stuff that you kind of learn in dental school and things like that. Where, where is yeah. that now? Is that just like all in the hands of hygiene? Like who's managing these like chronic perio diseases and things like that? It's a great question. So, and this is something I was actually discussing recently with some colleagues as well. So I think one of the biggest challenges that I think a lot of periodontists and perhaps and certainly myself are guilty of is that there seems to be this drive towards prescription kind of surgery. So we're doing like these treatments, but it seems like it's getting harder and harder to actually manage your typical chronic type of perios. I mean, the AAP has recently changed the way that we diagnose perio, and it's actually a little bit confusing. But what was your formerly uh, generalized chronic severe periodontal type of patient with, you know, four yeah. or five yeah. millimeter pockets, et cetera, um, that those patients, for the most part, typically the practice that I work in, I have a periodontal program instituted where we know based on people's presentations, radiographic bone loss, probing depths, clinical attachment loss, recession, et cetera, and their systemic issues, whether they should fall into a three-month, four-month, or six-month kind of maintenance protocol. Yeah. But for the most part, they do actually deal with the hygienist. Um, and only if something changes amongst doing their periodontal charting, whether it's annually or semi-annually, we see progressive disease uh, or, or, or you know, symptoms that develop, will they end up back in my chair for a discussion? So I think your, your everyday person, whether diseased or not, will either just be getting increased frequency of care from the hygiene. Yeah. That may be being done in the general dental office. It may, if it's an older model, being sent to the periodontist to their hygienist. But essentially, I, I think for me, if a patient ends up in my, in, in, under my care initially, we typically go from your usual phase one to doing like a so-called deep scaling and root planing it would be the first thing for someone who has deeper persistent pockets with local anesthetic yeah. to reevaluate it. And then they may end up getting types of flap surgeries or certain people are doing um, laser surgery or laser procedures like LANAP, for instance. Yeah. But for the most part, I think, I guess the short answer is that the hygienists are actually rendering the care, but a periodontist or the dentist would be the one who is supervising or the so-called responsible provider dictating how that care is given. That's pretty cool. So I didn't know that. So even, you know, traditionally, if you would refer off these cases to a perio, it wouldn't be the actual perio doing it. It'd be a hygienist in the perio office doing it. 
so you you can't really yeah so it's the hygienists that are doing all the scaling and everything yeah you're not yeah, paranoid. There are some old school dentists, some really guys who were like one operatory, etc. Yeah. Um, you may be able to find some periodontists. Honestly, I bet you that vintage is probably like mid 70 ish age bracket now, like kind of tail end of very tail end of their career yeah. who are doing it. But for the most part, um, you, you have high, well-trained hygienists who are experienced, who are fantastic doing that. And then just kind of, I guess, collaborating with the periodontist to make sure that things are that are things are stable, or, or if they look for any type of, uh, I guess, uh, direction. Yeah. So in terms of you know periodontal training, like here in in Australia, Melbourne, when I went to dental school, we had it was pretty much just like scaling and root planing, and you know with quadrants with LA and things like that. Uh, we yeah. never really were taught like surgical like flaps and things like that, just to like do that. So what's like what's it like in Toronto where you did your where you did your uh, dental school in terms of the perio treat like. Uh, education and exposure clinically yeah so i think for the most part it's pretty similar at least it was when i was there and i remember that was definitely i mean at u of t in general i think one of the kind of the reputation it has and one of the biggest challenges is the the amount of clinical work that people actually get under their belt when they're there it's kind of famous for its academia yeah and it's research and its didactic portion but you know especially even in comparison to Western or other places, you don't necessarily hit the pavement with clinical as early. From a perio perspective, I remember we were placed um, as assistants in the post-grad perio to actually observe and assist for some of the surgeries that they were doing. And we were allowed to do very, like with permission and a lot of steps and kind of paperwork and whatnot, like everything of tea, um, you could do some very basic type of perio surgeries, things like a flap if it was like confined to a sextant or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just maybe flap and maybe crown lengthening. Those may have been the only procedures. No gum grafting, certainly not dental implants. So it was it was quite limited. And I remember I was very fortunate. I got to do one, which was like yeah. that was crazy at the time. <laughs> that federal ranger with one of the perio postdocs and. The, with, yeah. the, with the with the organ with the uh, with the chair of perio, but for the most part, like you said, it was really limited. Um, and it's funny; I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, in some ways, it's it's I, it, I guess advantageous to me because then maybe people aren't as comfortable. They need to learn after the fact, and they'll also feel the need to send. But it's also a little bit of a shame because how do you necessarily really know that you want to pursue something? Exactly. And yeah. if you want to do something, you have like little to no experience in it, which is also a bit of a, a nuisance, of course. Yeah. So when did you, so I know, you know, we were talking earlier and you said you had that exposure to Perio and the chair of Perio at uh, one of the hospitals there in Toronto. And uh, that kind of swayed you towards doing Perio as a specialty. Were you ever considering any other specialty at all, like during your down school days? Yeah, I think like you. I, so for me, as silly as it sounds, um, you know, there's these people you meet like the first day of dental school and they know exactly what they're doing, right? Like they're yeah. like, I'm just <laughs> like it's, I know, right? Yeah. And I, at first, I was kind of hard on some of those people, like, how the hell do they know? But then you realize that even through dental school, you don't necessarily get to do that much of a procedure. So yeah. you have a choice. You can be like the person who says, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to work, I'm going to do residency and gain more experience. Or I'm going to kind of like, in my head, craft this idea of what I think is attractive to me. And I think even with dentistry as a profession, you know, yeah. none of us picked up a drill before we decided to be a dentist. We said, maybe my dad was a dentist, my friend's a dentist, uh, yeah. you know, Good profession, you can make a good living. It's kind of like being a doctor, etc. Blend of art and science, that business. Yeah, <laughs> it 
was the idea of surgery was very attractive. Yeah. I loved the idea of surgery. So it was either oral surgery or perio. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as silly as it sounds, when you're in it, oral surgery is more years. And a lot of guys said to me, you know, it's more intense and it's re- like the residency is call hours and your life could be call hours. And a lot yeah. of them actually told me that, you know, surgeons that I knew, they're like, I went through all that, you know, repairing faces, Laforte fractures, all this cool stuff. And then here I am, and in the end, I'm just popping out wisdom teeth anyways. So uh, yeah. not to say that's every oral surgeon by any means. I'm sure someone will, will hassle me about that. But yeah. so for yeah. me, I also, and then I guess the last driving thing was I really liked, uh, like I like precision versus like gross. So yeah. I think when you think oral surgeon, not that every oral surgeon is like that, um, they're, they're doing larger scale, you know, facial trauma, wiring jaws, bigger procedures. Yeah. And I really like the meticulous nature of the small. We're using 7-0 sutures now, 8-0 sutures, microscopic plastic surgery. And that was a bit of a draw for me. So I think that kind of guided me. And then plus the mentorship and everything like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Like in, in Australia here, the oral, sur- like the oral maxillofacial surgery, like pathway it's more like the british model so like you do your dental school and then you go into med school you, like it's like you gotta do all of med school it's not like the american like six years sort of blended programs that we have in north america yeah. so people here like it takes them like almost 10 years to become a max vax and obviously because of you know the backlog of like specialists and things like that there's not that many hospital jobs that you're doing these cool like the fort fractures and doing like the um, orthognathic surgery and things like that so they end up yeah doing school and training for like 10 plus years. And then they just come back and they're taking out wisdom teeth and doing implants. So I always thought, I'm like, that's like a little overkill. Like, so I, I like the, at least in North America, like the oral surgery, OMFS, there's like the four year version and the six year version. Seems a little bit more reasonable to do, um, to get into those pathways. Uh, perio is cool. I think perio, obviously is a lot, even with, um, probably my next question is going to be like with implants. Cause you know, the periodontists are doing implants, prosthodontists are doing implants, general dentists are doing implants, oral surgeons. So what's, What's like as a general dentist, if I'm going to be referring a case out, how do I decide who the best person is in terms of uh, their skill set or their idea of management? Not even close. Actually, you know what? I think so much of it, um, obviously, a lot of it has to do with your relationship with the person. And a lot of you obviously want to send to someone who you think is skilled and talented. But a lot of the times when you look at people for right or for wrong that ref- the way the referral bases were set up was a guy they were in school with, a guy they play hockey with, a guy they drink beers with, they golf with, whatever. They yeah. still think that person is good, but there has to be a trusting relationship. I think one thing we've benefited from and what I hear from my referrals is that Perio has this reputation that we pay a little closer attention to the soft tissue management. Yeah. So, you know, whether there's any truth to that or not, listen, I can show you a million periodontists who don't and a, a number of oral surgeons who do. So I think that they, even though it's like a generalization, I think it's worked to our benefit as a field and that a lot of people, think, oh, if it's a posterior case, I can send it to an oral surgeon. If it's an anterior case where yeah. the things are more important, maybe I need to send it to a periodontist, maybe it needs a little gum grafting or something like this. I think you hit on a very good point, which is that everyone and their brother are placing dental implants. Yeah. prosthodontists, and the doctors yeah. these days are plants and you know what i'm not against any of it um i think it's just all based on people have different levels of training and as long as the person that you're sending to you feel comfortable with their background with their training uh you know you can certainly see people's work through either lecturing instagram dentistry really is in some ways the future how it really has changed uh 
it just made the world so small. Like me talking to you, you know, talking to David, treatment planning with him. I have a guy who's currently visiting and has been for the last two months from Turkey, like at our clinic. Like it really is a, it's a, it's a game changer. And I think, um, it's a really cool medium, even though I thought it was really strictly for like 13 year old girls. (laughs) When did you, uh, when did you get into it? Honestly, I have to tell you that it was just the summer and I wasn't really on Instagram at all, period, even personally, besides like my wife bugging me to like post a picture of our kid or something. So like someone could see it. Yeah. My wife was on it. I thought she was just fooling around. She's an interior uh, designer. She said she was always working. She said, I'm on Instagram. I'm working. I said, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. (laughs) And I guess Instagram knows everything about you and so does social media. So certain big dentists and surgeons started showing up in my feed. Yeah. And uh, as a result, I, I, I added them and I started, I actually started asking questions and to my total dismay, some of these big guys in the world actually were writing back to my questions and comments, you know, what suture are you using? I'm using polypropylene or like what incision design was that? And I was like, some guys didn't write back to me because they said you're a private uh, thing and we, we don't know like you're a private, uh, whatever. So I started a professional account. I think it was in like July or August and I full out became like, in some ways addicted to it um, because I have learned so much from so many people of varying levels of experience and expertise and tried new procedures because of it. And uh, I, I, I mean, I've established amazing relationships, visiting guys from kind of meeting huge guys from all over the world, meeting people over the world, having people visit here. Uh, it's really established a cool network and collaboration. And I, I think it also holds me to a higher level because when I post stuff and when I've gotten back to taking photos now, which I didn't used to do, there's a lot more accountability. Um, you know, you see your photos and you realize maybe you weren't as happy with that case as you thought you were. And these are the little things you could have changed. And also every time I do something now, I think, would this be something I'd want to put on Instagram for, you know, thousands and thousands of people to see, is it, is it good enough quality? I think one niche that I have that, that we spoke about is that I really, for me, not that I was trying to have a brand or anything. I just, want to be a humble, accessible guy who has the same complications, trials and tribulations as the most experienced, the least experienced, whatever. I mean, the patient difficulties from, uh, you know, dialogues to treatment planning, to communications, to failures, et cetera. So um, it's been really good in that respect. And now I get, I get a, a lot of messages and whatnot, uh, just kind of bantering with people from all over the world. So it's, it's really, it's really yeah. tough. So yeah. it's, I think it really is the, in some way, I don't know how, but like the future of, of continuing education. It's yeah, it's been amazing. Like I, you know, during dental school, I started like the first account I sort of started following was like bloody tooth guy. Um, and he's like the oral surgeon, like in New yeah. York. Um, and like, you know, I was obsessed with him and that's like, followers. yeah, he's huge. And you know, in, I think it was like in third year, fourth year dental school. So, and you know, I wasn't doing much so I just, and I, I told you, I was like, I was really, really into like oral surgery yeah. and stuff. So every time I was like taking teeth out, I was like posting it and all my friends and classmates were like, what is this? So they started eventually doing it and it kind of caught on. And then I remember this is like on my personal account. So like all my high school friends were like, what is this like random like teeth you like posting and stuff? So he started following me and I was like, I, I remember I took a screenshot. I was like, man, it's like the best day of my life. Like play tooth guys like following me. So yeah, when I, when I graduated and I sort of started working and I kind of had the idea of like starting a podcast and all that, I was like, okay, so I'll do the newbie dentist thing. Just like, again, like I, I think like you said, you know, being humble is like pretty cool. And, you know, now that, you know, I've only been out for a few years, I'm like slowly getting better and like sure. my, I'm posting like better quality pictures and stuff, but it's like always cool to like look back and scroll through and like see like the, the crap I was sort of doing early on. Uh, but you, you hit the nail on the head. I think 
when you go into like a procedure and for us if we use like big implant cases for me it might just be like a simple class two or something i was like no i want to make i want this to be perfect because i want to post yeah. it and it makes your dentistry better so i think it's like a sweet cycle that people are in now and like you said the networking and the collaboration and the mentorship like you said i have a simple clinical question like oh how do i do this margin i can message a prosthodontist in like in new york or in england and they'll get back to you it's like insane yeah, are you do you find are is the younger not younger generate but like our i get messages from people i'm in second year dental school i'm in i'm thinking about doing perio whatever but is it i guess in dental school if i was in dental school or if i was in my residency i feel like i would be like beyond into this so I, do you find that a lot of younger dentists and clinicians and students and residents and stuff are like really using Instagram as like a tool for like not only learning, but finding continuing education and things like that? Because people ask me like, what do you, what, like a lot of my friends are like, so what's the purpose of what you're doing? They're like, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I really enjoy it. It's almost like a side hobby. And I also think I'm growing my career and whatnot. But I mean, ultimately people do ask me, can I come learn with you? Can I come to the clinic? So there could be something there in that respect. That wasn't the intention. It's just an indirect thing. But, um, I, 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 I'm curious to know, like, are, are, I guess, is it really like a mainstream kind of thing now? Cause for me, it was an undiscovered world. I didn't even know this existed months yeah. ago. And now when I lecture, I talk about it. And most of the audience who, you know, is 40, 50 plus is like, what are you even talking about? And then they'll come back from the break and be like, Whoa, like this is spear education is on here. Like Sasha yeah. is on here. Like every guy is on here doing stuff like this is like for real. Yeah. So I think there's that, you know, like that, that was like the fear of like diffusion of innovation and things like that. It takes time to trickle down to the elderly demographics. Sure. I think people, people in their like forties and fifties, like they're just now on Facebook and they have like their Facebook groups yeah. and like people post cases and stuff on there. I think Instagram, like you said, they probably saw their like teenage daughters and, and sons on there and they haven't thought about it much, but I think people our age, like the millennials are pretty active on Instagram. And I think for, for specialists, you know, I've talked to a few specialists in the city in Melbourne when I moved back. It's like a great marketing ploy, right? Because sure. one is you make yourself more accessible than the 50-year-old down the road yeah. who you've never spoken to. Um, and two is like if you're actually having that relationship and that interaction and the dialogue and going back and forth on cases, you know, you, I could even like start a case and you've kind of helped me plan it and I kind of get through it and I'm like, you know what, it's a little bit beyond my scope. And then I send it over and you, have, you already know what I'm talking about. You know what the case has been. So um, I think the, it's already there. I think it's going to get more you know, widely used. I think, you know, the, the dentists and the dental students who use Instagram for these purposes are the same as the ones that listen to podcasts, like a little bit of a self-selective group of people who are like trying to Next be level. better all the yeah. time. Uh, yeah. Cause a lot of people, you know, just kind of cruising through and, and they're happy with status quo and how they're doing it. But um, so I think it is a little bit of a selective group, which is fine. I think it's, at least it allows an avenue for people who want to no, get better to take effort, like, get better. It takes effort out of my day. Like I, to be posting everything with the amount of surgeries I'm doing and posting it and trying to respond to everyone who messages me. It's a huge amount of effort, but it's a huge, I find it to be, I learn a ton from the questions that I, I have to field. And I learn, fortunately, I find that people are pretty informationally generous on Instagram. There's something about, the person being another world away or whatever away that makes like there's less uh, of a guard or defense up where like people don't mind saying like, I, this is how I did it. Or here's my secret sauce or whatever. Like I'm, I've always been very like that even in person with people. Like I, I don't really have anything to hide. I feel like if I can help someone, it's great. But I, I think that the Instagram thing is totally wild. Like I work, I work pretty hard at it. Um, 
but it give it gives a lot to me as well. Like as, as weird as that sounds, yeah. and we always joke amongst a lot of the, the bigger guys who um, you know I follow and now kind of friends with that uh, that, that, that it's like <laughs> social media seems antisocial, but actually. Yeah. I've never felt more uh, connected to these individuals. That's awesome. And so what's your tip for general dentists now? Like, you know, you've been graduate for you know one or two years and they're, you know, we're like, oh, we like surgery. We like taking teeth out. We like, yeah. you know, doing uh, wisdom teeth and stuff now, tackling some cases. What's a good pathway? Um, obviously, if, like, let's speak from the North American side of things because you're obviously there now, so you might be more familiar with the training programs and courses and things. Uh, what's a good responsible pathway for a general dentist to kind of get into placing some implants and also like covering themselves a little bit because you don't want to be cowboys out there and getting into trouble. So uh, tell me a little bit about what you've heard or what you've seen from general dentists who have been pretty successful in doing implants and how there's kind of uh, came to that point in their careers. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh, a lot of guys who are general dentists who are fantastic. The guy that I mentioned who kind of started this clinic is, you know, he places more implants a year than probably any periodontal surgeon in the city. So he gets good at it. Now, how you get to that point without feeling like you're a cowboy is a challenge. I mean, the easiest but not easiest thing to do is, of course, to take like a typical residency, but that means, you know, X years of your life and, and a lot of yeah. money and, and whatnot. But it, I think if you want to just incorporate uh, implants or anything into your practice, you start with basic either mini residencies or C's or things like this. And you've got, uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge is trying to find the ones that are actually high quality because you can be inundated, whether it's social media uh, or, you know, mail outs, whatever it is about these different programs. Um, there are great ones in, in, in many different areas. Like our clinic runs uh, like we have a faculty that runs, uh, you know, an implant residency. I oh, think nice. really trying to get on the continuing education train is, is yeah. really important. And, and then I think that the, the biggest piece that comes with that from like the so-called cowboy aspect is that, I mean, I think when you enter, you just, I, like anything, you have to just feel comfortable working within the scope of your practice and whatever it is that you're taking on. Of course, there's always a leap when it's something you've never done before. And listen, I'm learning every day new new things that I didn't learn in my residency, and I only graduated within a decade, uh, which yeah. I thought was cutting edge. And it's 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 can be absolutely scary to try and incorporate these new things, even even as a, a relatively experienced clinician. Um, surrounding yourself with good mentors is a good thing as well. So uh, I think Instagram is interesting in that respect. Not that that's how you, yeah. but like, but asking people. Uh, or having someone as a backup, like my dad is a GP, and you know he sends his CT scans to me to make sure there's nothing he's missing before he takes on doing his you know basic three six molar implant with a nice wide ridge, just yeah. to make sure, right? Like it's like, or he knows that he has me as a backup. Not that that's how he's working, but God forbid something happens, and that's where those relationships come into play. I, yeah. I think like study clubs and things like that are helpful, but I think just getting yourself really into a number of uh, kind of CE type of situations would be good with at least the basics of like a foundational kind of, a lot of these people call them, like I said, mini residencies where you do get a lot of hours and like you can have someone over your shoulder. One cool thing and part of the reason our clinic is so big and what we're trying to get into is yeah. started off giving didactic lectures and then we've turned it into hands-on components as well where you can bring your own patients and whatnot, but we're trying to create these kind of apprenticeships or observership things where even after that, you could physically just bring your one patient 
and scheduled to have Dr. Walton or whatever surgeons there, not only treatment plan it with you in advance, but be over your shoulder for the case. We can help you like provide the instrumentation in case you don't want to sink the overhead right off the bat and things like that. It's almost like a, like a rent a dent. Like you, you can come and have a menu of, I want the chair. I want the assistant <laughs> plant inventory. I want the anesthetic. That's a great, that's a great option. Yeah. It is. So it's a pretty cool thing. And, uh, we're just kind of in the infancy of it, but, uh, I think that's a great, a great way to really gain comfort. And then of course, just time and experience starting slow and, and just easing your way in as opposed to just going right at the, you know, the most like biggest case. Cause you, you know, you have a lot of debt, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's where you never want to be. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So in terms of, so the implant world now as a general dentist, you know, what's like, so you're saying is the, the most routine cases, what would be like a good starting? Like, so if you say, so you've done your courses and everything, you're like, okay, I want to start getting my hands wet and doing yeah. some courses. What are some of the case types or teeth replacements that you recommend as like a good starting point? Probably just a, like a posterior tooth is, is probably the, yeah. not that it's like you want to do any worse in the posterior area, but the stakes aren't yeah. high, right. And, and, yeah. and I've seen the, unfortunately the outcomes of the best intention, loveliest guys trying to get started, uh, you know, and just didn't, didn't realize some of the, the possible complications that could ensue from doing a, you know, a central incisor, placing it just a little mm -hmm. bit too buckle. And all of a sudden the tooth is times and a half the length that it was supposed to be. So I would say just starting off with, you know, three, six, three, five, like a second premolar molar type of site, either mandible or maxilla, and then make yeah. sure that the area is, has adequate bony housing. And the easiest way to do that is just to send for a CT scan. Um, yeah. I think the interesting thing is that digital dentistry and guided implant dentistry, whereas it used to be a thing that was only used in complicated cases near the nerve, near the sinus, uh, close to like in the congenitally missing lateral that like the roots were converging. Now it's becoming more and more routine, uh, yeah. double-edged sword because you've got beginner or novice uh, clinicians who are learning implants, almost learning this out of the gate because you can plan everything on the computer and then literally, not like you're a robot, but you go and you do it and it's a great thing, but they don't necessarily have a backup plan if something goes wrong or the stent doesn't fit perfectly. So I think yeah. doing things planning, like digital aided, as opposed to necessarily digitally fully guided is a great thing. Going through the motions of plunking the implant in on the CT scan, appreciating the angle and the person's bite and everything, the anatomy, and then yeah. having it to at least start with your first drill and things like that to make sure you've got the right orientation, angulation, and whatnot is key. And obviously, I guess a, a non-smoker, a systemically healthy patient, all these external factors are a great thing as well. Yeah. So are you doing most of your cases like freehand or are you doing guided for a lot of them? So it's a really interesting kind of evolution and you talk about change. So I did a, a, a pretty small amount of guided in my residency. I had a not so great experience, but things have changed drastically. I actually did a lot of what was at the time called um, Nobel Guide. And it was like Nobel BioCare's brand name kind of guide. And it was for doing arches. Yeah. And I was doing like eight to 10 implants. And we were doing them like flapless and just plunking them in. And as a part of our follow-up protocol at the school, before I left, we had to take CT scans of these patients. And a lot of the yeah. implants were not where the guide had shown them to be. They were somewhat out of the housing, wrong angulations. Um, so I shied away. And then for a long yeah. time, I kind of felt like I wanted to be like, you know, the most skilled clinician, the most talented, the most accurate. And I, I 
to a degree so much that I think I fought the digital world saying that ah, that's for people who, you know, they don't have the experience, they don't know what they're doing, but yeah. you know what? I'll tell you that done properly, it's an amazing adjunct and I'm slowly coming around. I think it took a little bit of almost like biting my pride or some courage to say, you know what, probably even with the degree of error that's introduced into these digital things, this is a way for me to be even better. And that, planning things in advance and, and, and noticing things in advance and making sure the implant is perfectly through the cingulum where you want it and just on the right prosthetically driven position and you know that yeah. multiple implants are spaced properly and not near any anatomy or anything like that. It's really growing and uh, I'm using it more and more and I'm trying to use it. I don't want to say for every case by any means, but yeah. it's, it's definitely uh, the future and certainly for a lot of clinicians already the present. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, like, you know, one of your differentiating factors in your practice and how you guys are modeling how your things are doing is like the same day implant and tooth. Obviously, like when you go, you know, we're going through dental school and even like in the, some of the CPD and stuff, you know, like you said, you got you know place the implant, wait like three, four months for osteointegration and then um, do another stage. Tell me a little bit about what protocol and like, how is it that you're doing what you're doing now? How is that uh, working out? Yeah. So the history there is interesting because when I graduated, I was of the same mindset, traditional delayed-ish protocol, take the tooth out, wait a few months, put the implant in, wait a few months, put the crown on. And actually, I had heard rumblings of the clinic that I now work at, that they were yeah. doing stuff the same day. And when the dentist asked me my opinion, I basically told them that it was BS. Uh, yeah. There's no way. And uh, when I, I told you that I was working with a periodontist, that I was at his office like three days a week. And we split, split and went our separate ways. Well, I was left with yeah. days of nothing to do with my schedule. Uh, and I was a young guy and kind of scared and like, I'm supposed to be a successful dentist and everything's supposed to happen. Yeah. Here I am working two days a week, you know, living in my parents' basement, like what's going on. And yeah. uh, I, I saw a flyer for this clinic. It's called Chrysalis. And uh, on one of the dentists that I worked with uh, desk saying, we're holding a, what was called like a dentist information night. Come hear about what we do, hear how we do this stuff and whatnot. And I saw the, the doctor on it and I was like, I kind of have heard of that doctor. And through like two degrees of separation, I was able to get his cell phone number. I nice. said, listen, is there any way, uh, you know, I'm a young periodontist. I'd love to come observe. I just want to come watch. Of course, in my head, the thought was I need a job now. <laughs> yeah. so I showed up there. He said, sure, you're welcome to come watch, but you may not like what you're going to see. And sure enough, you know, I got there and he said, you know, periodontists don't like this place because it goes against everything that they've learned and they've been taught. But there was some older oral surgeons at the time working there who were very experienced doing the same stuff. Yeah. I thought to myself, okay, this place is putting in thousands of implants every year and they're running a successful business. They can't not work. And so what happened yeah. was this guy said, listen, like, you know, you talk about being a cowboy, but he said, just try it. He said, have you ever done a case? And I had never done a case before. I had never even immediately yeah. placed it. I was doing immediate placement, but not immediate yeah. visualization. Yeah. So I started off gently, like incorporating them, and then more and more, and then getting aggressive. And then I dialed back a little bit and found my sweet spot. Now, the, the, the key is that when you speak to anyone who kind of naysays or says, like, you know, this is not possible and you can't get the success, the truth is that if the next question you ask them is, have you ever done a single case? They'll be like, yeah. and they'll say, I've never done one before. So I think yeah. the, the challenge is that you need to know, I think the, the greater 
barrier is having the infrastructure. So if you do this in a typical referral model, you have to uh, take the take the tooth out, have the laboratory prepare something, um, send the patient with the the like a gauze in their mouth in the, in their car to the prosthodontist who puts the temporary on, who figures out the temporary doesn't fit because there's a the little bone in the way, who has to send it back to the dent the surgeon. It's very inconvenient, but yeah. because of the infrastructure that we have with the lab and ourselves and every surgery I do, I have a lab tech over my shoulder, place it more deeply, place it left, place it right, mesial, distal, not this way, not that way enough, because they know exactly how they want the tooth to look. Yeah. So one is the infrastructure, which comes at a large cost, and a lot of people are simply not willing to do that. If you do these things chair side, which I have with some of my other dentists, it is, takes a long time. There's very little money in it for the dentist, sadly. Like they charge a few hundred dollars for this temporary that takes them three hours to kind of fabricate and, and fool around with. Yeah. And it doesn't even look that great. And if you don't make it really nicely and smooth, especially subgingively, you will end up with bone loss and inflammation and problems. So I think the biggest barrier is that protocol-wise for doing it, there is also a whole surgical armamentarium and technique sensitivity that comes with this and learning curve. The way that we place yeah. implants to make sure they're immediate from the type of drilling sequences that we use to the bone that we engage to how we prepare the osteotomies to smaller size to the type of implant systems that we use with their inherent designs with greater taper and th more aggressive threads um, and, and, and taking it out of occlusion and all these little things to get high torque values and, and patient compliance. These are all key pieces of the puzzle. And the truth is that even after all of that, we do push the limit, but part of that is because patients really come to us because they want it same day. And the referring yeah. dentists now have come to expect it for good or for bad. And they say, you know, I can always send it to my old guy if you can't do it at the same time. So there's this fine balance between- <laughs> A little pressure as well, yeah. Pressure's on, but of course, patient safety and success is the key. There will be conversations we'll have with patients sometimes telling them, listen, it's not my ideal to actually temporize this because the implant didn't go in as tightly or there was some infection present, et cetera. And we have patients who say, fine, just go conservative, don't place the implant, or I'll wear a flipper or something. Uh, or we'll just say, you know what, let's roll the dice. And uh, you know, we pick up the slack of that. So we deal with probably more complications than your average clinic does because we're on that kind of cutting edge. But because of it, yeah. we get to be in an exciting place. The, probably the most gratifying thing that I do are these treatments where patients who have either told they can't get implants or told it was going to take two years with grafting and hip grafting and all this stuff. And we say, you're going to be in and out of the chair in four hours or in an hour, yeah. single tooth. And they're just like, it's, it's probably the closest life-changing thing that I get to do as a dentist or as a doctor. Yeah. That's really cool. Which is awesome. Yeah. So let's, um, you know, from the, the human side of things, you, you mentioned you guys deal with a lot of complications, things, things like that. Uh, I know for like myself and like a lot of the uh, young clinicians, you know, when your stuff fails, it's quite, you take it quite personally, it's quite hard on you, right? So um, coming from an environment where you're dealing with that kind of stuff a lot, because you're obviously the inherent nature of how you're practicing is you're pushing the boundaries a little bit to try and achieve results. Um, how was that for you when you first started out and your, some of your vein plans started failing? How was that like just emotionally and mentally like trying to cope with that? Still depressing. You know that stat they say about like how dentists have the number one suicide rate? No, <laughs> 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 no, no, honestly, 
honestly though. I think I think physicians are one now, so we dropped down a peg, which is nice. <laughs> I don't know. All my friends that are dentists seem to be really happy. I don't know where that all came from. We we love our yeah. hours. It's great. Um, yeah. I'll tell you a couple of quick things that you know. I remember the first implants that I had fail happened. Fortunately, my third year of my residency, my last year of perio, and I remember. Um, like I'm a pretty positive kind of outgoing guy and I was kind of just a little glum walking my way through the halls and one of my attendings said to me, what's kind of, what's the matter? And, uh, I said, you know, I just had my first two implants fail thinking like I'd placed a few hundred at the time, uh, on my way out of the doors basically. And I said, you know, I'm really upset. Like I'm really disappointed. And he said, you just, he said, you had just had your first two implants fail. He said, you haven't placed enough implants. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of merit to that. I, I think that the, the, the biggest challenge is that, and another time that I had complications, I remember one dentist who, again, one of my attendings who saw me looking so upset, he just said, that makes you a good dentist. You know, there's lots of guys who do stuff and then they don't care that it went wrong or that, it, that it's a problem. And I agree. I think probably the toughest challenge of our job is, you know, I'll come home to my wife and say, you know, I'm just feeling ill today kind of like when it rains, it pours. And, you know, I've had a number of implants fail. I think a little bit like uh, maybe mental illness or other things that have stigmas and weren't as spoken about, complications in dentistry is not something that you see people typically putting up on the big screen. And for that reason, yeah. it makes it even more challenging. Um, one thing I try and be, I try not to be, I should say, is this specialist who's kind of classically are considered to be on this pedestal and like, you know, if I had done this then I wouldn't have screwed it up and you screwed it up because you don't have an experience. Well, you know what? I think that someone told me the definition of a specialist is someone who's made more mistakes in a field than anyone else. And I totally agree with that because, you know, when you are pushing the limits or not even, when you're doing more complicated cases and you're doing more volume of cases, whether it's implants or anything else, you're going to have failures. I had someone reach out to me on Instagram recently and said, uh, I, I always find that people enjoy when you share your failures. Like they say, it makes them feel better. Not that like misery yeah. likes company, but it's nice to know. And yeah. you're not alone. That This happens to people who have every level of experience. I think anyone who doesn't tell you otherwise is unrealistic. He was talking, this guy was messaging me about a post on some big famous dentist guy's thing. And he said, wow, this guy does everything well. What do you, how do you think he does it so successfully every time? I said, well, he has his complications big bone grafts and stuff like this. He says, really? He said, do you think he has this implant? His implants don't work or something? I said, are you kidding? I said, I just, sometimes you do a basic gum graft and it doesn't work. Sometimes you do a basic filling and it doesn't work. I mean, of course, when he's doing these crazy surgeries, sometimes they don't work, but it, you're absolutely true. People are tainted. And I think probably the, one of the other big difficulties is that there's a huge dichotomy between medicine and dentistry when it comes to complications. When you go yeah. to, to a medical procedure, they tell you you could die on the table and that's acceptable. Or yeah. I always tell people, have you ever seen what a prosthetic limb looks like? But when we make an implant, I put it in, the patient sits there with the mirror saying it looks like uh, it's a half a millimeter too long than our other central incisor and it's a failure. Mm-hmm. And you know, how can yeah. you do this? What do you, wait? Well, it's a prosthetic. I mean, we do a pretty damn good job and we stand behind the work that we do. Surgeons have complications in medicine a lot of the times. Sorry. I mean, it's just part of what happens. The human body, it's surgery. It just is what it is. So I think yeah. really as dentists, I like to think, uh, put ourselves at a high pinnacle. There's a guy on, on, uh, who's a colleague of mine in Beverly Hills working on very high end patients. His name's Kyle Stanley. And he actually on his Instagram feed speaks a lot about, 
he speaks a lot to the pressures and the stresses and the mental aspect and emotions and anxiety that come with dentistry. And it's a really, it's a really, really good thing. Okay. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I think especially in Canada where, you know, the health, the medicine side of things is like, Oh, hip and people don't pay out of pocket. The expectation is different. Whereas they come into the dental office, like I just paid like five grand for an implant. Why is it? Whereas if they go to hospital, they don't know it costs the government or the system or their taxpayers, like $50,000 or something to get like a knee replaced. But they just they don't have they don't compute it the same way I think. Look, you, you same thing. You walk into hospital, you wait four and a half hours to see the doctor. You're like happy to see them, great, no problem. It took you ten years to see them. You run one minute late in the chair, and the patient's like, "What the hell is going on here? What's going on here? Let's go. What's <laughs> yeah, happening?" Different, different expectations. <laughs> awesome stuff, man. It's been uh, it's been great chatting with you. You know, normally uh, what I like to do is kind of just uh, end these things with a bit of a rapid fire. Um, so I'll get into that. If you don't mind. Yeah, go right uh, so what's your, uh, what's your favorite pizza topping? Ooh, I'd have to go with, I really like, like a spicy salami. Spicy salami. Yeah. Good choice. What's uh, if you weren't doing dentistry, what uh, career would you be in? I think the smallest, maybe two answers to if that's allowed. One, sure. <laughs> I, I think I, sometimes when I'm doing surgery and I see other more significant surgeries, I, sometimes I love the idea of doing like plastic surgery or other surgeries like that. And like this tiny part of me wants to go back and like do medicine and do that and be like kind of on a bigger scale um, or having a bigger impact on people. And the other thing that I just actually love just as a hobby is I'm very fond of watching real estate. Like I'm, <laughs> I actually just enjoy seeing in Toronto and being an interesting real estate market, looking at what they yeah. I've sold for or buy for is just, I just, I take interest in it. Yeah. So it's like a completely different world. It's just totally <laughs> going from world. surgery to real estate. Totally different. Well, I guess it's like, yeah, making things over and making things look better and things like that, which is cool. Um, so what's like the one procedure in dentistry or I guess perio for you that kind of makes you question your career choice? Whew. Um, I would have to say, so it's, it's a bit of a double edged sword again, but it's, Sometimes it's it's got to be implants, right? Uh, just with the comp, with the, just because the 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 high degree of invasion with some of the cases and the stakes with some of the cases and the cost that people are paying and what they're going through. When you have complications with them, it, you know, just it, you lose sleep at night over it. Uh, I've been fortunate not to have, have any major major ones, but um, you hear horror stories and, and those kind of things. When you're in those moments where things aren't going well, you think boy, like money aside, everything aside, I'd pay someone to take this off my hands. It's very yeah. challenging. So I think complications associated with implant care or implant failures are probably the angst of my being. And as a young guy uh, yeah. doing implants at the quantity that I'm doing them now, I, I'm in some ways I'm scared of what the future might hold for me 30 years from now. I'm going to certainly be seeing a lot of these people to my grave. So, uh, you know, the gun wraps <laughs> and things like that, they work. They're easy. If they're complications, then they're easy to fix. Implants is a yeah. bit of a, a trickier twist. So it's, I, I have a bit of, I guess, in some ways, a love-hate. Yeah. And so since you're in Toronto, I guess, let's quickly just wrap up with some sports stock. Like, do you follow like Raptors and Leafs a lot? Or? So funnily enough, I'm not, the, I'm not, I play a lot of sports. I'm yeah. a diehard Leaf or Raptors or Jays fan. I'm quick to jump on yeah. the bandwagon when they're having good seasons. I'll always welcome yeah. an invitation to anyone who wants to, you know, have me join them in their seats for a beer and catch a game. Uh, yeah. I'm certainly not uh, the typical kind of diehard watch till, you know, through all their bad and good type of seasons. But I play hockey. 
at least once a week. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of sports myself, but I was never a huge sports follower, even, uh, even yeah. as a kid. I don't know. That's good. I think it's probably why you got so successful in your career. I, I think if I, if I compute how much time I've wasted watching like soccer and basketball and hockey, like it's, it's mind blowing. I'm like, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you uh, uh, for coming on again. It's, it's been a, you know, great to chat with you. Uh, it's nice to hear that accent again as well, which is quite nice. I don't hear that in my day to day life. So. Am I saying like a boot? And how- yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, it's like the way that like Torontonians speak, right? It's kind of cool just to kind of hear that again. So um, it's been fun chatting with you. And then hopefully we'll do another one in the future and kind of follow up and see how things are going with you.